welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series. And with me today to share the stories behind the 10 books that had the most significant impact on his life journey is writer, speaker, opinion leader, Stephen G. Post, who in addition to teaching humanities and spirituality in medical schools for over 35 years, is also a dedicated contributor to research on altruism and love, clinical bioethics, and the care of deeply forgetful people. Stephen is the lead author of the best-selling book, When Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Healthier, Happier Life by the Simple Act of Giving, and his most recent book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, chronicles his life journey and another astonishing influence besides the 10 best list that he'll be sharing with us tonight that guided him on his path, which started with a series of recurring dreams in which a blue angel spoke to him and showed him a vision. Rest assured, I'm gonna make sure that we hear a bit more about that later on. So Stephen Post, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sandy, and thank you, Sharon, for having me. It's really a delight. Couldn't be happier. Stephen, we always start with two important questions. And the first one is, what do books mean to you? And I know that you've said that they have, uh, you've been reading books about higher love since your teen years. So why? What attracted you to books about higher love? Really, as long as I can remember, I had this spiritual inclination. Maybe I had a religion gene. Some people have risk genes, some people have religion genes, but I was relatively prayerful and even pietistic, uh, as people remember me even early on. Uh, and, uh, and it seemed to me that uh, the most significant uh, strength that we can gain when we connect with a higher being, a source, a presence, uh, whatever one wants to call that energy and reality, uh, the, the, the power of it is love. And it's not just a, a human emotional love that can be inconsistent, that can flicker on and off, that can be myopic, that can be unwise, but that marvelous experience that people really can have of a sort of breaking in a kind of invasion by an energy that they can't explain, they can't see, but they know uh, that it's a love that underlies the universe and can affect us in profound ways. Mm. Now you said in your um, introduction to your 10 best list that was published on the website that nature is a sacred book too and so that's another way to read. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, nature is so important. You know, when people talk about spiritual enlightenment, um, oftentimes you'll see images of, uh, of a waterfall. Uh, you'll have chimes in the wind. There's something about nature that is a window into the divine uh, again, however you describe that uh, energy, uh, but it's very important because 
when we get so caught up in this world, there are so many pressures, so many uh, powerful forces that divert us from our own inner being, our own inner spiritual core, uh, the best thing you can do is just get out into nature. Uh, I happen to live on the North Shore of uh, Long Island, looking out across uh, the Long Island Sound toward uh, New Haven. And the beach means a lot to me, listening to the sounds of the waves and, and appreciating the beauty of fall colors. Uh, that to me has always been a very mystical uh, source. So definitely nature is a, is a window into the divine. There are other things that are windows into the divine, but, but nature is extremely important. So the second question that we ask people is, what was it like for you to have to go back and look over your life and pick 10 books? You know, I, I, I delayed it for a little bit uh, and, I, and, and I let it percolate uh, because I just didn't want to rush into it. And after a couple of weeks with this sort of in the back of my consciousness, then it became relatively easy uh, and, uh, and I enjoyed the process. I think it was a very worthwhile exercise and I was grateful uh, that you uh, invited me to do that. Twisted your arm. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> you're, 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 you, you were comfortable in doing so. Well, I knew you'd have a lot to say. Um, having had that wonderful interview with you and having read your book, I thought, no, this, this is one that I've got to, I've got to have another conversation here. <laughs> so I knew you would have something good to say. Well, let's start with your books. And the first one is Strength to Love by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., published in 1963. When did you first read that book? I read that book in high school. Uh, I had a wonderful African-American Episcopal priest, sacred studies teacher um, named Reverend Walker, who eventually became the dean of the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., um, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he was a graduate of Morehouse College, where Martin Luther King had gone, the great bastion of African-American theology and spirituality, the great mystics like Howard Thurman taught there and so forth. Um, but um, I was exposed to the Morehouse tradition, as we call it, early on. And um, that particular book, The Strength to Love, impressed me because there were so many uh, strong pressures challenging King uh, and he could so easily have resorted to violence. Uh, he could have gone in a very different direction, but somehow or another in his deep prayer life and meditational life, um, he, he stayed with love and he stayed with love all the way through. He had a certain kind of a mirthful quality and uh, was known for relatively tasteful jokes. Um, he could write words that jumped right off the page because he was such a poet. He was really a man of great love. And, and the strength to love 
was compiled in a very difficult period of his, of his life. Uh, he wanted to do the best he could with his time. He was actually incarcerated uh, for a bit of that uh, period. And so Strength to Love is an incredible um, personal statement about how if we work at it and develop the inward strength, we can, we can stick with love and not hate. We can be instruments of love to be a little Franciscan. Uh, uh, and and we can make it work, and he made it work in the end. Of course, he was a threat be, to anybody who only loved white people or um, people other than African Americans, and that's typically the case. You know, Gandhi loved everybody, and he was killed by a radical Hindu. Uh, Rabin uh, loved everybody and he was killed by a radical Jew and Sadat, it's a long list. Abraham Lincoln loved everybody and he was killed by um, a, a radical Southerner. So people who love everyone are inevitably a threat to those who only love some small fragment of humanity. But Martin Luther King, you know, he was incredible because of that love within him. And some years ago, about 12 years ago, I was invited to give the annual Martin Luther King lecture at Morehouse College, which was a treat. And, uh, um, and so I love MLK and, and I think this is his most powerful book in a lot of ways. I mean, Letters from a Birmingham Jail, everything's, you know, where do we go from here? These are all important books, but if you really want to get to the core of who and what he was, it was the strength to love. And that had a lot of influence on me when I was 15 and 16 years old. Was it a revelation or was it a confirmation for you? Oh, it was a confirmation. Uh, I, uh, up there in Concord, New Hampshire, at an Episcopal boarding school, uh, a place called St. Paul's, I was always reading the spiritual classics, um, in, including, uh, you know, medieval Anglican type things. Um, but, um, uh, and, and I loved, I loved uh, Emerson, the idea of the oversoul, the idea that somehow all of our minds are part of one mind, to use Larry Dossie's language, um, and um, that uh, we're not just uh, separated by walls, but somehow at this level of mind and spirit, we can connect and be intuitive and have experiences of synchronicity and premonition, which is what God and Love on Route 80 is mostly about, you know. But I believe that. And, and King, Martin Luther King didn't quite have that metaphysical vision, but he believed uh, more concretely in, in the fact that everything we do affects other people, that we're so interconnected that this idea of self-reliance is a complete falsehood. You know, when a child that comes into the world, they're totally reliant for an incredibly long period on their, on their mother and father, if there's a father around. Uh, when we fall ill, we're totally uh, reliant on others. Oftentimes when we get old, uh, we become reliant on, on others in very profound ways. So the, the reality of life is interdependence. And we learn that when 
somebody with um, Martin Luther King would use this kind of a language, somebody falls ill in another part of the world and then that particular virus comes next door. So there's this kind of empirical oneness that he emphasized and I like that. Um, um, it's not quite the way I think of it, but I think it's true. I think it's absolutely true. So interdependence and vulnerability, the kind of vulnerability that that interdependence creates. And so for M Martin Luther King, if there's one single individual on the face of the earth who is humiliated by racism or whatever and told that they cannot manifest their giftedness and their talents, because he believed more than anything that everybody, everybody has some gift. Everybody is a miracle of creation. Everybody is a wonder of the universe. We all have that. And, and our job in life is, is to discover that capacity, that calling within ourselves to help other people discover it within themselves, whether in the classroom or just on the street corner, walk up to someone and say, by the way, do you know what and who you are? You are a wonder of the universe. Try it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that was Martin Luther King. And I, I really appreciated that. And I believe, I believe he was right about so many things. Yeah. Yeah, he was. So book number two, One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters by Larry D Dossey. And that was published in 2013. Yeah, I just love Larry Dossey. Um, I, have, I have a long history with um, Sir John Templeton, uh, who was yes. not from the UK. He was knighted because he helped bail out Oxford and the royal family <laughs> at one point in time. He was a great investor. Um, uh, and I was at a um, meeting at a, in Virginia near Dulles Airport, and this is about 1990. Um, and uh, uh, that was when I first met Sir John. Someone said, there's Sir John. It was a meeting on spirituality and health and he was interested in that, he'd funded it. I sat down and we had this wonderful conversation about agape love and, and ultimately he was interested in the unity school of Christianity, which is the sort of the one mind branch that, that comes in through the transcendentalists in Boston who are all reading the Upanishads, Emerson and Thoreau and all these other individuals. And um, so he loved that kind of idea. And uh, he was having dinner that night with uh, Larry Dossie, who I had never met. And I did not know much about Larry Dossie, except that he'd been a, a very well-established clinician. And uh, that night, uh, Sir John agreed to fund a series of conferences that Larry was convening on the, the idea of one mind. Uh, that our minds are not just epiphenomenal or not just derived from tissue, brain, cells, matter, uh, that, that, that mind is its own ultimate reality, that, that it's matter after mind, that, that in fact, there's this original infinite mind from which matter is derived and not vice versa, which is what the materialists would argue. So Sir John was completely uh, delighted with Larry, and I have followed Larry over the years. Um, his books on premonition, his books on prayer have always been wonderfully successful, and he has such a combination of 
um, philosophical, spiritual wisdom and good practical scientific insight. Uh, so Larry's great. And when he published One Mind, I was just so happy because more than any other book that's ever been written, guaranteed, it gets to this idea. And it, it's so beautiful. Um, it's something that should be a spiritual classic forever and ever and ever. And, and, and so naturally, you know, when I was doing God and Love on Route 80, I, um, I emailed Larry for a blurb. And within about two minutes, I, and I sent, him the, I sent him the first chapter, actually sent him the chapter about the Blue Angel Dream. He, he must have read it in, in, in three or four minutes because I immediately got an email back from him. And he asked me, could I write a forward to your book? And he wrote a beautiful forward about the idea of one mind and its history and its validity and why it's at the basis of an awful lot of spiritual experiences and certainly synchronicity. So uh, he did that and it was such a nice thing for him to do. I, I just think the world of him, he lives the song he sings about. Mm. Yes, that's my kind of man. You, <laughs> um, you know, it's so interesting because um, God and Love on Route 80 is all about, I mean, there's, there's 13 episodes of synchronicity in your life and synchronicity has led you from where you were to where you are and you have followed th those nudges and synchronistically you've met the most amazing people along the way. I mean, you know, oh, Sir John Templeton, Larry Dossie, you know, um, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Yeah. You sat down and had a conversation and that's like, you know, for many people, that would be the Holy Grail. Well, Joseph Campbell and Mercia Eliade at the same time. Mm. Bottom, yes. <laughs> at the bottom of Swift Hall. So I quit a career in, in uh, immunology at, Pencil, at U of Penn. And I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School, which is known for the study of world religions. And I loved Mercia um, Eliade's work on shamanism. And, I and Joseph Campbell was still mostly in New York, but he visited for a few quarters every year um, in Chicago. And I had a chance to sit down and tell them about um, leaving my dad's car on Route 80 and all these things. And, and it was just great to be able to talk about those experiences with people that brilliant. And, you know, they, um, they were so supportive. They were, they were such great mentors because they also rejected a purely materialist metaphysic. And so they wanted to encourage me. And, and I, I eventually, uh, you know, I started writing little excerpts of God and Love on Route 80 in 2000. Uh, and, and, uh, and then some years ago, four or five years ago, began to bring it all together. But, but yeah, uh, I've been very fortunate because on a journey you don't make your life. You know, people lie to themselves. They're always fooling themselves. Oh, I made my life. I got where I am because I planned it from the get-go. <laughs> oh, come on. Don't tell me that. It's just untrue. You know, you do the best you can. You're on a journey. Um, and you encounter, by total surprise, all kinds of individuals and situations. The trick is being open to surprises and where you have control on the journey 
is in how you respond to these individuals that you you encounter, you know. So I was surprised to meet Sir John in that green blazer in that um, foyer to a golf resort hotel. Uh, but um, it was my response to him because I, I saw in him a gift. I saw him as someone that this infinite mind or original mind had brought into my, into my journey. We did wonderful things together for a long time. Um, he asked you to write a book for him that he was unable to write. The title okay. of which is Ultimate Reality Unlimited Love. Yeah. That's a hilarious story. So uh, I did a lot of things with Sir John and you know, I, I wrote the forward to his Worldwide Laws of Life, The Essential Laws of Life, which is about uh, gratitude and kindness and forgiveness and all these strengths, wisdom and so forth that he thought were really important. But he wanted a psychological researcher to help him bring science to these great strengths. So I was able to be at a meeting with uh, Sir John and Martin Seligman, Marty Seligman in Philadelphia in 1997, uh, helping to introduce Sir John uh, to Marty. And Marty had been studying learned helplessness. You know, if you humiliate somebody long enough, they'll forget that they are a wonder of nature, that they are a miracle of the universe, and they'll just be down like a, on the floor. Um, but uh, Marty wanted to get beyond that and he, he embraced positive psychology. So really positive psychology was totally funded by Sir John. And we started institutes around the world and around the country at different universities, including places like Oxford, for example. The, uh, it just, uh, Sir John was incredible. Uh, but I was able to, um, to respond to him. And when he was dying, he died in uh, 2008, as I was leaving Cleveland and coming to New York. And I was very sad about it. Um, but about two weeks, three weeks before he died, his son, Jack Templeton, who was, who, was, who was a pediatric trauma surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital, he, um, he called me one morning. I had a flip phone at the time, you know, and now I have a smartphone, you'll be happy to know. <laughs> and I got this call from Jack. And... Um, uh, it, and Jack said, dad is dying. And I said, oh no, that's so sad. And, and, um, and he said he has one request from his deathbed and he, it's for you. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, you know, <laughs> what is it? And he, he said, he, well, he, you know, dad has written a few books and um, he wants to write one last book that really captures everything that he, he truly believes in the most meaningful way. But he doesn't have time to write it because he's dying. And that was a problem, you know, practically speaking. So he's asking you if you would try to write it on his behalf and capture his core idea. And I said, Jack, that is a really bold request. You know, um, I'm not sure anybody can do that for anyone, but because it's your dad, I'll, I'll give it a whack. Does he have a title? And so Jack, Jack said, yes, he does. Oh, what's that, Jack? And Jack said, ultimate 
reality is unlimited love, which is a very cosmic metaphysical thing to say. Your quantum theorists would believe that and have no problem. Uh, John, the wonderful John Barrow, the great English physicist and mathematician who just died a month ago and had won the Doubleton Award, he wrote about the anthropic principle and how the universe is set up by this cosmic mind and love to bring life into the world. He, I love John Barrow, by the way. I'm so sorry he passed away. He was a dean at uh, one of the colleges at Cambridge. But uh, so I said, Jack, would you go back to your dad and ask him if we can slightly modify the title? Not a lot, just a little, right? Could, could we add a question mark? So Jack went off. He, he came back about three minutes later. And he said, yeah, dad, dad says it's okay to have a title, is ultimate reality unlimited love, question mark. And I said, great, because it meant I didn't have to absolutely prove anything, which, you know, I mean, people like Sheldrake and others can try to do that, and they're better at it than I am, but I'm not a physicist or a mathematician, but I appreciate that genre. So I was able to bring that together and... Um, published that book, and Jack uh, and his wife, Pina, now both of them are deceased, wrote the forward to it, um, and had all sorts of wonderful letters, too, from great um, physicists and, uh, and, and theologians uh, who really appreciated Sir John for trying to bring together humility, how little we know. I mean, that was Sir John's mantra, how little we know. I mean, the idea of, of conflict over religious doctrines that all have a historical beginning point. They may have degrees of truth in them, but the idea that we could hurt each other over these ego claims, that was very disturbing to Sir John. <clears throat> so he was encouraging all religions to be totally open-minded, to be eager to learn, and, um, uh, and to marry, uh, especially uh, mathematics and physics with um, our spiritual theological constructs. So I love Sir John and I wrote that book as best I could. It's not perfect, but it meant a lot to me. And uh, it, was, it was fun. And he I love Sir John, asked, I love the guy, he was great. He asked you to um, head up the Unlimited Love Institute and which has funded so much research into altruism and love. Yeah, so John and I, you know, um, we had such a nice working relationship. Sir John, now I know everybody on this call, you all email and you Zoom and things. Well, you know, Sir John was before this generation. He, he died, I think he was 96 when he died in 2008. He was 96. Um, he thought the facts was the coolest thing ever invented. He just loved the facts. And I was sitting in my office. I, was at, I taught for 20 years at the medical school at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. And uh, one morning, it was the summertime, I got this wonderful fax from Sir John, which only Sir John could have done. And he said, you know, we need to start an institute that studies love, but not just human love. Because human love, you know, you can't really depend on it. Um, it's unwise. It, you know, it's it's... It's, it, it can be faint and it can be myopic and narrow and unexpansive. 
not that human love is so bad, but we're talking about the love that made humans, the love that made the universe. That's what he said. And, and we need to study that and how people have experiences of it that break into their consciousness and transform them. So um, I fax back, Sir John, that is a wonderful idea. Uh, what should we call it? And then he faxed the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, because he'd written a little book called Pure Unlimited Love, the purest love in the universe. And um, I ad admit, you know, I had a little bit of trepidation because I was doing a lot of Alzheimer's genetic stuff at the time, and I was around a lot of biological scientists, and most of them were flat-out materialists. A lot, many, you know, about a third of mathematicians and about a third of physicists really embrace the idea of an infinite mind and the possibility of love informing the universe. But the biologists tend not to. And there are reasons for that. But um, I was just a little bit um, concerned. So I faxed Sir John, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for, okay, get this, Sandy, creative altruism. Because altruism is like a very accepted concept in the life sciences, you know, Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene talks a lot about altruism, the illusion of altruism was really just the unwitting conduits for these DNA coils to foist themselves into the future. So we're not altruistic at all. We're just selfish, but laying that aside. Um, um, but, but it's a safer term and, and sociologists and psychologists use it so I said, Sir John, maybe we should call this the Institute for the Study of Creative Altruism. And I got a fax back from Sir John that said, no, Stephen, I think unlimited love up to $8.9 million. Now, Sharon, I did what you would have done. <laughs> or Eileen or Eva or Mary or Francis. <laughs> I did exactly, Annalisa. Jane, I did exactly what you would have done. I faxed back to Sir John. Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. <laughs> of course, I believed it. I mean, I believed in what he was saying. And he was quite right because he wanted this to really connect with the spiritualities of the world as well as the sciences. And so I was, I was beholden to him and... And we, we funded all these things and, and really kick-started this, this field. And, um, you know, we were funding people from, you know, Noetics to Harvard Div to Oxford to you name it. You know, we were funding a lot of great projects. But they weren't just projects about human love. Because, hey, you know, I mean, people have been studying kindness. And it's all important. I mean, I like to be kind when I come in here in the morning. I don't want to be, you know ramming people into the walls, right? I want to be kind and, and, and have a gentle curiosity about, hey, how was the day? But um, Sir John wanted to get to something bigger than that. And, um, and I owe him a lot because he affirmed in a powerful way what I had believed ever since I was, you know, six, 15 years old at St. Paul's School, reading Emerson and being the, everybody loved Emerson because it's beautiful literature, but I think I was the only kid in my class who really believed in the idea of the oversoul. And all that from one chance meeting. <laughs> <laughs>
in, 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 uh, in, that, in that Virginia Virginia hotel. There were a lot of great people there. I mean, Dave Larson, Howard, Harold Koenig, a lot of the leaders of, of spirituality and health. Of course, Larry was there. Um, and Sir John was just so, so kind and so humble. And he took an interest in me and, and he didn't have to. I mean, he was worth billions of dollars. He was, you know, a great investor. You know, I mean, he built a room in Westminster Cathedral, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's Sir John, but he was just, he, he was just so open. And for some reason, we, we connected. And um, that's one of the great moments of yeah. uh, Route 80. <laughs> one, one mind. Okay, so moving on to book three, we have The Science of Religion by Paramahansa Yogananda. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, um, I really do admire, I'm an Episcopalian. I, you know, I go to Episcopal masses fairly regularly. Um, and I, I don't go with a lot of doctrine in Christianity, but I, I accept the basic idea of atonement, that there can be an indemnification and an atonement and um, uh, so, so uh, that's always been a part of who I am. But I'm also very much into Hinduism and uh, Buddhism as well, um, and several other traditions, but particularly Hinduism. So I loved um, uh, Yogananda's book. It was very influential when I was a kid. Um, just the other day, I, I uh, was invited to join the board of the Parliament of World Religions, which goes way back to uh, Chicago, you know, and I don't know, like, you know, 18, 1894, and I, something like that. And um, I like that uh, pluralism, I like that openness, and I like the Hindu tradition. Um, I basically accept the idea that there is this consciousness that exists before the Big Bang, Hindu metaphysics and that is beyond time and beyond space um, and that um, everything comes from that consciousness. So um, for me uh, that that Hindu metaphysic means means a lot. Um, about six years ago I was I was um, in India at the Indian Institute for advanced studies, and I was doing a, a presentation on um, people with dementia. I call them the deeply forgetful. And I was doing a talk, Is Grandma Still There?, which I ultimately published in a, in a, in a scientific journal. Um, and I've always assumed that even though there's a loss of communicative capacity, underneath it all, we, we cannot say that Grandma's not there, that, she, that this is a husk, a shell, you know, gone, empty, dead, etc. I just don't believe that because my grandmother passed away of probable Alzheimer's disease. And we still had this incredible rapport, even after she couldn't talk very well or at all, but I would do assisted oral feeding in a nursing home and she still connected with me. And sometimes I was open to surprises. She would express something that was completely shocking for its lucidity. And people talk about terminal lucidity in what I call the deeply forgetful. I don't like dementia. I think it's a, a negative concept, but deeply forgetful. Hey, you know, we're all forgetful to some degree. I bet everybody on this call has those moments, you know, 
And you just wonder, oh my God, I can't remember that name. Um, so some people are more forgetful than others, but I, I was giving a talk uh, and um, a lot of Indian physicists and mathematicians and neuroscientists were there, uh, Hindu theologians, psychologists, just great people. And um, I was talking about the fact that the conscious, it's the consciousness of a deeply forgetful person that gives them human dignity. They may not have linear rationality, like they may not be able to lay down a la John Locke, their personhood, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that they're a person, they count morally, they, under the principle of do no harm because they can project ideas into the future and operationalize them. That's not really too important. I mean, sometimes we do that, but sometimes we don't, you know, it depends on the day. We have consciousness and, and people who are deeply forgetful can enjoy music, they can enjoy art, they can be creative in amazing ways. Um, so I gave this talk and in walked uh, His Holiness because he hangs around there a little bit. And, um, it, you know, it was, he's, he was very humble. So nobody really even observed him much. It was just sort of par for the course. Um, and, and then he said, um, you're right, there's no reason to value a person who is deeply forgetful any less than a person who is not deeply forgetful because the core of human dignity is our consciousness and we all have consciousness. Now, if someone's in a persistent vegetative state, you know, that's, then you're, you know, you're getting in a different world there, but, but it's consciousness that matters. And so that, that really matters. That's important to me. And I, and, I, and so I love Hinduism and I, I, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I was with a great neurologist named Joseph Michael Foley, who'd been at Harvard for many years, and he came to Case Western to start a department there in about 1960. He was incredible. And we went to a, a, a geriatric psychiatric institute in, in uh, um, the middle of Ohio. And there was a whole wing of it devoted to geriatric people who uh, had Down syndrome or other cognitive developmental disabilities in their in, in earlier in life. And most people with Down syndrome, there are a lot of people with Downs there, uh, when they get into their 40s and 50s, they also have the problem of uh, Alzheimer's-like dementia. And, uh, and this is a particularly difficult for their families because you know those thresholds of success that they've achieved painstakingly, suddenly there's a kind of development in reverse. So I used to do a lot of counseling with those families and I used to write about the duly diagnosed. Um, but we were so impressed by the meticulous care that these nurses and uh, nurses aides were providing for these individuals, there were about 70 people and it was just unbelievable and it wasn't easy to do. So we took, uh, you know, four or five of these uh, nurses and nurses aides out to a pizza place in Gambier, Ohio, next to Kenyon College and uh, got them some pizza and we asked them, so why do you, where, where do you find the inner resource to care so beautifully for these, for these people who are, who are um, so imperiled? And you know what they said? It was really simple. They said, namaste. I mean, the, you know, I honor the divine in you and you honor the divine in me. And no matter how forgetful someone 
gets, that's still there. I told someone the other day, they were asked, actually this was someone who was a, a, a spouse who was really wondering about her, her, her husband. I said, look, he's still there. <clears throat> he's a little opaque, <laughs> a little opaque now. But I kind of have a hunch, having known him, that he's just gone down to 30th Street train station and he's got one foot on that train bound for glory. He's just ahead of us. Mm. You know, and, 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 and that's how I think of these people. So Hinduism is, is, is important because it has such a profound, expansive notion of human inclusivity. It's our consciousness, not because we can do X or Y. It's our being, it's our consciousness. It's not because we can rattle off facts from history, but it's our consciousness. And I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I love the term deeply forgetful. I think it's very respectful and also a very fund term. Yeah. Um, and I just want, before we move on to the next book, I just want to dial back and fact check so that, you know, we're clear. When you slipped in that mention of His Holiness, you're talking about the Dalai Lama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Who has written forward or is it a forward or something for your next book well actually so so um he he got a copy somehow of god and love on route 80 the hidden mystery of human connectedness i don't know exactly how but you're, you're absolutely right so uh, lo and behold like a year after it was actually published which was uh you know basically a year ago but august 1st 2020 I got this beautiful letter via an email attachment from His Holiness. And it talks a lot about, you know, science and physicists and neuroscientists. And, and then he says, I, I was pleased to see that author, that my wife's husband, that's me, I guess, is addressing themes such as consciousness and interconnectedness in his new book, God and Love on Route 80. It's my hope that this book will contribute to the flourishing of humanity. So. You know, when you have an academic office, you've got all kinds of stupid plaques sitting around. You know, you get plaques and every time it doesn't. You know, you, really, you don't know what to do. You, you don't quite throw them away, but you box them someplace. But this, this along with um, the beautiful uh, shell figure that I got for serving on the board of trustees of the Templeton Foundation, um, they're the two things that are most meaningful. So yeah, I'm happy about this. I, was, I understand why. <laughs> I and, and the next time you talk to him, Stephen, please tell him I would love to have his 10 best spiritual books. Well, I could email him. I, 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 I've never actually, uh, you know, I mean, I did not really talk to him uh, um, uh, in India. I, I mean, he, he was there, he made a couple of comments and then just sort of, you know, gone with the wind. So I, I can't say that I've ever had a personal conversation with him, but I know that he he does not accept as I don't what I've what I've defined as hypercognitive values that we only value people because their cognition is so intact and they're smarter and they're brighter and more creative. That's all such garbledygook. That's when you start talking about life unworthy of life and utilitarian value systems and useless eaters and 
one thing I learned from my grandmother, and I didn't learn this from anybody else except my grandmother post, um, was that there was a lot more there than met the eye. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that the truth? Okay, let's move on to book four. Is consciousness primary from the founding members of the Academy of Post-Materialist Sciences, Gary Schwartz, mm -hmm. and Marjorie Woolacott. Yes, yes. Yes. So what is it about this book that you enjoyed so much? Well, you know, it's a book that had just come out. It's 2019. And um, I am a great admirer of Lisa Miller at Columbia, who wrote a best-selling book a few years ago called The Spiritual Child. And she actually talks about these profound spiritual experiences that children have. I, I, kind of, I had an experience when I was 15 with this dream. And it could easily have been written off, you know, like a, I, I was a dyspeptic hot dog. It was working off too many demerits, raking leaves in the hot sun in New Hampshire, whatever, you know. But somehow or another, you know, it meant something to me. And, and so um, I really love her work. And she is, is, is the founder of this um, Academy of Post-Materialist Scientists. Now, they're all scientists. I mean, if you... Um, if you look at the brain, for example, as a neuroscientist, you're going to find certain <clears throat> areas that are active when people are having what they would describe as a spiritual experience. Mm. The question is, okay, you can take that same fact and do you interpret it as a materialist and say, well, it's just brain cells firing or do you have a non-materialist view that somehow this is part of an infinite mind that we all participate in that underlies the universe and the order of the universe? And, um, you know, it connects with the brain uh, at certain touch points, and you can look at those um, with an MRI or, or whatever. Um, by the way, the guy Latterer who, who invented the MRI had an office just down the hall over here. He won the Nobel Prize. And, the, and he was, he, talk about a eureka moment. He was in a diner, okay, on Long Island. He's a physicist and a chemist. And, and he wrote down on a napkin his idea for MRI. He developed it here. And the first entity that was ever subjected to an MRI image was a clam from a beach about a mile from here. <laughs> I shouldn't go off on those tangents. But anyway, sure, you know, um, I'm um, um, just um, very much committed to good science, but I'm not impressed by people saying, well, you have to be a materialist. I don't have to be a materialist, right? Nobody has to be a materialist. They can have the same methods and the same credibility. This is how Sir John thought. But in this, they can see hints at a higher order of reality. And it's not just um, matter alone. Mm -hmm. So I like this book because it's, it's important. I mean, I think it's the founding of that academy. They have a website. They have uh, you know, a lot of really great people. It's a phenomenal organization. Uh, uh, you, you know, the psychiatrist Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia, yes. a lot of many great people who have studied near-death experiences and 
terminal lucidity and all these things. Uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a benchmark. That's why, I, you know, it's not so much that every bit of the book is flawless or, or you know, far superior to other books that have been written in this genre, but it's a benchmark. And, and I think it's important to have it in, in the universe. So book number five, Cosmic Consciousness, a study in the evolution of the human mind by Richard Morris Buck, MD, published in 1901. Yeah, I love this book, Cosmic. So whenever you, you're, you're, you're walking through London or wherever and you see a sign that says, Dave's Cosmic Subs, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, you don't realize it, but that, that owes something to Richard Buck, who was a physician. And he was a very close friend of Walt Whitman. And Walt Whitman was a great mystic. Walt Whitman was born here on Long Island in Huntington, about 20 miles from here. And um, I go to his birth house, you know, once or twice a year. Uh, he was incredibly gifted and he was a cosmic genius. Um, and uh, he also believed he was a transcendentalist in the one mind, you know. And uh, Richard Buck was a Canadian physician um, who uh, was very distinguished and he came down uh, into the New York area and he actually uh, became um, Walt Whitman's doctor. And, um, and he and Walt Whitman had these incredible conversations about the cosmic consciousness, the cosmic mind. I mean, they actually frame that term, cosmic consciousness. I mean, it's there in the Hindu tradition in Buddhism, but to act, that, that actual language game comes from that relationship. So I can imagine, you know, what kind of conversations they had when Whitman was, you know, uh, visiting the doctor's office, but they were also just great friends back and forth. And so it's, it's, it's an important book because, um, it's a benchmark, and 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 I. Uh, it's a great read. It's written in this sort of beautiful old style prose. Um, if you've ever read uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, it has that same kind of feel of a classic spiritual work. Uh, it's very inspiring, and it talks about every kind of tradition. And it also was, um, you know, they had some. Parliament of the World Religion events in Toronto as well as Chicago early on, and um, um, and um, um, uh, Maurice uh, Buck was a part of that. So it just connects with everything. But I like it because he was a doctor. <clears throat> and since I spent the last thirty-five years hanging around tons of doctors <laughs> in medical schools. Um, it, it to me, it's the best clinician statement of the universal mind. So book number six is Forgotten Truth, The Common Vision of the World's Religions by Houston Smith, 1992. Yeah, so I knew Houston Smith and uh, he, was, he was up at the University uh, of um, Syracuse. Uh, he was a Harvard World Religions guy. Uh, he wrote a wonderful book, a classic, uh, called The Religions of the World, which is still the most widely cited and used text in undergraduate classrooms in the field. Um, you know, Houston Smith always interested me because 
uh, he's one of these people who's sort of in the in the times of you know Timothy Leary and so forth. Uh, um, he he took psilocybin and he was an experimenter. I didn't do that kind of stuff, but I I, I but but um, you know right right now if you had to say well where does Houston Smith fit, he would be a transpersonal psychologist, you know, some of those people at the Esalon Institute and so mm-hmm. forth kind of are, are experimental. And there's a lot of new work being done, by the way, on, on psilocybin and psychiatry. Yes, there is. You can't dismiss it. You cannot mm. dismiss it, actually. I don't advise it for people. I mean, it's not like I'm going to run around recommending that people take peyote. But I, I, I take it seriously. There have been some beautiful books written in the last four or five years by great physicians and scientists and, uh, and psychiatrists about this. So we'll see what the future holds. But um, Forgotten Truth is his statement of the common vision of the world's religions. And in this wonderful integration of all these traditions, he says, hey, this is it. It's this one mind idea. I mean, it's very resonant with Larry's stuff. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I like Houston Smith. I mean, he's passed away now. I thought very highly of him. He was a very humble man. Um, and uh, um, so I, I, and I, and, and brave and, 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 and courageous in, in writing this book because, you know, it wasn't quite as well received as his other works. Again, because there's so much bias and, uh, uh, and in some cases outright hostility. A lot of people who study religion, frankly, are flat-out materialists. Okay, there's a lot of theologians floating around who don't believe in, you know, God, the universe, source, presence, superior, supreme being, or anything. You know, they're 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 death of God type theologians, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for Houston Smith to write this um, was, you know, somewhat courageous, and it's a beautiful book. It's simple. Um, you know, he has the style, a little bit of a C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, would have agreed with this. Because if mm-hmm. you read C.S. Lewis, I mean, C.S. Lewis's idea of God is, it's actually, I, I owe C.S. Lewis something. Um, I mean, I'm actually a fellow at St. Hugh's College, Oxford, and I spent a few summers there and, and been to Lewis's place. But for C.S. Lewis, he said, what is God? That God is infinite mind. God is infinite mind, you know. It's just this infinite mind that pervades everything and is beyond space and time. It's, you know, C.S. Lewis is surprisingly Hindu. So um, he would have agreed with, with this, and Tolkien too. Mm, yeah, yeah. So book number seven, you have said, is one of the most inspiring and meaningful books that you've ever read. And you've been reading it for the better part of the last 40 years. And that book is The Science of Mind, A Philosophy, A Faith, A Way of Life by Ernest Holmes. Yeah, I have to give Ernest Holmes a lot of credit. You know, he was out there in Los Angeles. Um, he was a member of the generally new, the new thought movement, which included unity and a few other uh, groups. And he started um, the science of mind movement. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, um, it's, it's a movement that, that, first of all, puts the emphasis on mind before matter you know, which is consistent with, with myself and with Sir John and all these other people I'm mentioning. Um, and, and he believes that if you, he believed that if you live purely, 
by the positive version of the golden rule, not the negative version, do not do unto others. That just means you have to go home tonight. Sharon, if you haven't elbowed some innocent person in Utah in the ribs, you can put your feet up and feel pretty good about your life. But no, no, no. The positive version, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That means you have to use your creative moral imagination and contribute to the lives of others. Then you can feel good about yourself at night, okay? I think you're going to feel fine tonight. I'm just kidding you. But anyway, um, uh, and he believed that if you, if you live that way, and that's where your energy is and your thoughts are, then you will come into this metaphysical space where you experience the divine mind. You know, this is something that um, Norman Rockwell tried to portray, portray in his great painting, The Golden Rule, right? So, um, and, and the idea is that if you're in the right space, and if your thoughts are loving and constructive, then they will come into reality. I mean, there has to be a certain humility, you know, I mean, the caveat consistent with love and graciousness and inclusiveness. So it's not just, you know, my thought is the secret, quote unquote, and, and I'm gonna kind of force this into the universe. It's not that simple. But if you're, if, if you're, if, if what, so I get up at five o'clock every morning. I've been up at five since I was 14 years old and I meditate and I pray. And my wife, it drives my wife crazy. I've been married 38 years. Yeah. Someone asked me the other day, what, what's the secret to a long marriage? I said, you got to embrace imperfection. And then they said, oh, you know what? There's a saying in Persian for every, uh, there, there, there is an intentional imperfection in the weave of every Persian rug. There's an intentional imperfection in the weave of every Persian rug. I'm imperfect, you're, we're all imperfect. <clears throat> um, so I don't wanna go too far with perfection. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't help us that much. But you know, the point, the point um, for Holmes is that so long as we're intentionally focused on the love of others and ourselves as well, self-compassion is important. Um, you know, so I'm up in the morning and I'm meditating and I'm praying and I'm at a certain point thinking about all the people I'm going to meet over the course of the day and um, what kind of manifestation of love they, they might need. Someone might, a patient might need compassion, attentive listening. Someone might need what I call care frontation. It's a concept I developed with S with M. Scott Peck, who was a psychiatrist who wrote The Road Less Traveled. He was yes. with a Case Western Medical School, and we were good buddies. I have a whole folder of correspondence from Scotty. And we were looking for a word that was better than confrontation. Because, you know, the, be the best friends you have are the people who make sure that you don't get completely off course and violate your integrity and who you are. I mean, your best friends are ones that are going to say, hey, you know what, I think you really ought to re redo this and kind of don't, don't, don't go in that direction, but stay over here. Um, so that's carefrontation, not confrontation, okay? And in Why Good Things Happen to Good People, there's actually a chapter on carefrontation. So I, uh, Scotty passed away, but I owe, I owe him a lot. I really like Scotty Peck. Um, uh, his book is, would be on my, my list too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great, really important book. Very. Uh, and a pathfinder, uh, you know, a pathbreaker, because 
um, you know, he was doing this in the psychiatric community and it wasn't, it wasn't simple, yeah. but, but absolutely. So Ernest Holmes, um, you know, important to me and, 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 uh, you know, when I, when I get up in the morning, I, I, I like the early morning, the, the, the Kabbalistic spiritualists said millennia ago that the early morning is really important because when you rise up in the morning, you don't really know quite where you are. You know, I could be in New York. I could be in Cleveland. It doesn't really matter too much. You know? I just don't quite feel exactly where I am geographically. And you're also freed of a strong sense of time. You know, the chronological time, chronos, hasn't invaded your life. You're, you know, you may think, well, I'm going to brush my teeth eventually, but you're not into this, you know, schedule. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you're a little bit beyond space and time. And that's where the Godhead is. That is where the infinite mind is. That's where it dwells. And so if you're going to work in that spiritual way and um, develop thoughts that you project into the universe, into the one mind that can affect other minds potentially that can prime you for your interactions over the course of the day that can even, who knows, have impact neuroplastically and uh, uh, epigenetically. I have no idea. That's all a mystery, but somehow or another uh, in that space, um, we can practice this idea of the, uh, of the one mind and really of the science of mind. So I never go into a science of mind service or anything like that, but I, I've always read this book and I find it very inspiring. As did, you know, Jean Houston, for example, who wrote a great yes. book to it. And I respect her. She actually taught at Marymount College in Terrytown for a while. And I was, uh, I had her office. So I was at Fordham Marymount after I got done with Chicago and I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I spent three years at Fordham Marymount in an office in Girard Hall. And it was her office because she had taught world religions there. And then she went upstate and started doing her own thing. But I can say that I shared her all. I, I, I had an office that Jean Houston once had. That's not bad. <laughs> okay, so book number eight is The Ways and Power of Love, Types, Factors, and Techniques of Moral Transformation by Paterim Sorokin, published in 1954. And you say that Sorokin was the greatest sociologist of how people connect with divine love across all the major religions of the world. Yeah, I think he was the greatest sociologist who ever lived. And I, uh, I know his son, uh, uh, who, who still lives in Boston. So P Petrum Sorokin, he was Russian. And during the Russian Revolution, okay, he's the only Russian who, who was imprisoned by both the Tsar uh, and by the, the communists, by, uh, by Lenin. And he actually preferred the czar's prison to Lenin's prison. <laughs> um, he, was, he was what you'd call a Menshevik. He was a white Russian. And when the Bolsheviks came in, he was out, out the door. Um, but he was a profound spiritual thinker. He was a mystic. He was, a, he was Russian Orthodox. He grew up painting icons in Russian Orthodox cathedrals with his dad. An amazing mind. And so he escapes over the Baltic Sea and he comes to America and, um, and he teaches at the University of uh, Minnesota in criminology. He's got a, you know, and he's, he's very, becomes a very distinguished criminologist. 
and um, he goes to Harvard, and they invite him at Harvard to found, this is about 1932, the first department of uh, human sciences there. Basically, soci he founded sociology at Harvard, and they thought they were getting a criminologist. And he also studied family, because he, he, he was interested in how the deterioration of the family contributes to antisocial behavior, which, you know, is, is something to think about. <clears throat> so, um, He's there, and then, lo and behold, I don't know what he what what he ate or drank, but um, certainly by the the, the the World War II had a big impact on him. Um, you know, the nuclear bomb had a big impact on him, and he got a letter from Eli Lilly himself. You know, from you know Lilly Pharmaceuticals, um, just saying, look, um, they knew each other somehow. Uh, here is. Um, you know, a million and a half dollars, and I want you to start, and this is where I, I remember my letter to Sir John, my fax to Sir John, I want you to start an institute to study altruism. So actually, he, Sorokin did develop an institute for the study of creative altruism, because he also knew there was destructive altruism, when people only love some small fragment of humanity, and they want to kill all the rest. That's the sort of union oneness by elimination, which is not what we want. We want oneness that's true oneness. So, so he starts this incredible institute there, and and um, I had the honor when I was up at St. Paul's in New Hampshire of hearing Sorokin a year before he died. He died in 1969. I was a young guy, very young kid, but I heard him talk about um, about love, and the and the ways and power of love is is a tremendous description of the techniques, the techniques. Okay. It's not just idea, but the techniques that all these traditions have to move us closer to that source of infinite love. It's a great, great book. And so when Sir John asked me to found the Institute for Unlimited Love, um, uh, the first thing I did, because this book was not in print, it wasn't available. I said, let's do a new edition of Fitram Sorokin's classic. It's a big book. And um, so we brought it out with the Templeton Press and I wrote a, like a 70 page forward to it and talked all about Sorokin, because I, I identified with Sorokin, you know. And I mean, two people who actually really had an interest. I mean, there's so many people who influenced me, but when I was up in New Hampshire, we, you know, we really were lucky because some great people floated through St. Paul's and gave talks, but one of them was Norman Rockwell who gave a talk on the golden, on the golden rule. And one of them was Sorokin, right? And even Aaron Copeland, my brother wrote Aaron Copeland a letter. My brother was there a few years ahead of me. Copeland lived in Brooklyn and he invited him up there and Copeland actually came up and I was able to play a little classical guitar in, in, uh, in Scudder House with Copeland there. And he gave me some you know, feedback on my phrasing, right? I played Villalobos which comes into the Route 80 book, by the way, because that's how I earned my living that summer in San Francisco. But, but absolutely, so, so Sorokin is, is, is really, really important. And he said, you know, when you think about love, you got to think, think about it in terms of, three, of five axes or five dimensions. One, extensivity. So the great spiritual figures of love include all people and all nature, right? I mean, they're not just narrowly focused, but they have this extensivity. 
And then he's talked about intensivity. Um, you know, human love, you know, like I said, tends to come and go, but, but there's this divine love that is so intensive, so bright, so luminary. This is what people with near-death experiences are talking about. Um, you know, it's, it's of its own sort. And then he said, love, love can be pure or not so pure. So, you know, when you say you love somebody, but then, you know, the next day you're abusing them, be it a child or a spouse or a friend, or humiliating them, that's a very impure love. Um, I mean, parental love is one of the purest kinds of love, but, you know, as Freud pointed out, a lot of times we just want to see that child do what we did in our lives, and they kind of carry forward our stupid little goals. Um, and then um, wisdom, you know, sometimes you love people, but boy, you do the worst things and you teach them very bad habits and, um, and they get into trouble. So you've overindulged them and that kind of thing. Well, I won't go into it, but Sorokin had this unbelievable view of love. And so, um, you know, divine love is a perfect 10, right? And then human love might be, you know, running around three, four, five in different categories, you know. <clears throat> but it's only when you connect through a spiritual technique with that perfect 10, okay, that you are invaded, almost literally invaded, like W.H. Auden, you know. I, I use that quote in Route 80, where he talks about sitting there, uh, I guess, on some Oxford college lawn with some colleagues, mm -hmm. and suddenly he just feels transformed and he doesn't see anything. He can't, you know but he just knows that somehow he's experienced a higher form of love. And he's sitting there with these people, they're kind of friends, they're not drinking. And he just has this incredible sense that their lives are each infinitely valuable, infinitely regardable. And, and, and you know, I, I obviously, I like Auden, you know, who coined the term, you know, the age of anxiety, I actually, and, and, and he viewed that experience of divine love as the answer to anxiety. So I keep a copy of uh, The Age of Anxiety on my shelf wherever I am because he, he understood we're not going to get out of this without somehow connecting with things that are, that are deep. So yeah, I like Sorokin. I'm all for Sorokin. But go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. So number nine, you mentioned Lisa Miller. This is her book, The Spiritual Child. The New Science of Parenting for Health and Lifelong Thriving, published in 2015. Yeah, I was just with um, Lisa yesterday uh, uh, on a Zoom event on religion and health. She's just incredible as a human being. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, this book, you know, it's so easy to dismiss the spiritual experiences of children. Um, and, and yet, it's that inner child that's so important to spirituality. I mean, this is what Carl Jung talked about. And we go through life, I'm, I hate to say this, you know, but um, there are a lot of people, human nature being a very mixed bag, who just enjoy humiliating that inner child, de-dignifying that inner child, yeah. being derisive. And... My spiritual goal in life, and you know this from reading Route 80, has been one thing particularly, maybe there are some other things too, but it's been to stay in touch with my inner child. Now you can talk about that in terms of being 
and the Brahma Kamoras and you know, you can talk about, about that light within. That's the same thing. That's what Young was trying to get at. <clears throat> but it's in a way a little easier for some people who don't go into that metaphysical side to talk about, hey, can you remember back to your childhood? Remember that image of you, you know, just, I have an image in, in Route 80, you know, just leaning up against that tree as a five-year-old, so innocent, so pure, so hopeful, so ecstatically excited about every new discovery in the universe and nature and so creative. You know, that's what we need in, in life. And, and that spiritual dimensionality that we just have innately, I think that is what Lisa takes more seriously than almost anyone else. So I, I love her for doing that. So book number 10, the last one, yeah. uh, Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World by Matthew Ricard. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Matthew and, you know, he's, he's written books on happiness and altruism. Uh, he's, a, he's a Buddhist monk in Nepal. Um, uh, he's a French scientist, a geneticist, but his father was a very famous French philosopher, actually a phenomenologist who was very well regarded. And, and so Mathieu is just this unbelievably kind person. He has an energy about him. And um, when he was writing this book, he was, he was in his um, monastery in Nepal and didn't really have access to every PDF or book or whatever. So he was emailing me because I'd written these books on altruistic love. He was emailing me for PDFs and I was floating him all these PDFs and we were going back and forth. He wrote the most beautiful book on altruism and it's, 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 it's starts with evolution and biology, but then goes into spirituality and techniques and, and, you know, our, our children, altruistic or are they just natch, nasty little cretins you know i mean that's you know and and i mean i love a freudian lord of the rings type approach and he goes through all the science showing that they have a very deep natural empathy and even as they get into their second year capacity for altruistic actions so i love that book i love that guy and he comes to new york every year for the world science festival uh, which is supported, by the way, by the Templeton Foundation and by the Simons Foundation. Jim Simons was a mathematician here at Stony Brook <clears throat> who started Renaissance Technologies. That's why we're the Renaissance School of Medicine, the only medical school named after a hedge fund. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but he's like, you know, 30 billion bucks and more. And, and um, so I, first thing I did when I came here in 2008 was I went to Jim's office, which was down the road at the Renaissance campus. He was no longer here with the mission of creating a match between the Templeton Foundation and the Simons Foundation to support the World Science Festival in perpetuity, because that has a lot of stuff going on at the, interaction, at the interface of science and religion. So that happened, and it's still funded by those two organizations. So I, I was happy about that. But I love, I love Matthew, and Matthew comes in and gives these beautiful talks. Um, he's a, a genius of a writer, but he's also just you know, he's, you know, he's, he's the closest 
he, he, I, I could ever imagine anyone uh, to, you know, uh, uh, he's a Dalai Lama of his generation, is what I would say. And so it's a great, great book. And I use it in class. You know, we have a master's course and I teach compassionate care and altruism seminars. And we, we read this book and people love it. So that's your 10 books. <clears throat> Out of that 10, if you were to ask to recommend one, just one, to a young person starting out on their life path, which one would it be? Strength to Love, Martin Luther King. Because there are so many obstacles and forces and adversaries that are going to try to pull you away from who you know you are. Because you know you are, in essence, a being of light. You know you have that inner child. You feel it. Even in education, you know, they don't want to bring out that sort of effervescent visionary creativity. You know, they kind of teach you to fit in, right? You're going to have a career. You're going to be part of an organization. When I was at, when I was at St. Paul's, I read The Man with the Gray Flannel Suit, which made me swear off ever going on Wall Street or being, being a lawyer, you know. Sorry, I mean, I don't mean to defend anybody, but that was an influence on me at the time. Um, by Sloan Wilson, whose son, by the way, David Sloan Wilson, is the great evolutionary biologist of altruism. Um, um, who wrote Do Unto Others, classic book. But I, I think this is a really important book because Martin Luther King knew, you know, he, he, he kept in touch with that boy within there, that there's this almost radiant nature to his face when you look at him as an adolescent. And, you know, he went to Morehouse, Benjamin Elijah Mays was his mentor. Um, he was doing all the mystical stuff with Howard Thurman. Uh, there's the Thurman Institute at Morehouse. And, you know, um, you just have to fight to be who you are in this world. And, and the adversaries who come your way, and there will be some, you know, a, there may be a lot. You just, you can't hate them. That's the strength of love. You have to view them as, as gifts. I mean, think about this. If Joseph's brothers didn't throw him in a hole in the ground and then sell him to a caravan so he got to Egypt, he would never have been Joseph, you know? Yeah. If um, uh, David hadn't met Goliath, how would David have been introduced to the universe? Yeah. So, so I, I've had adversaries, you know, I've been floating around academic medical centers, Chicago, Michigan, Case Western here. You know, every once in a while, you're going to run into people. Sometimes it's more tongue in cheek. And sometimes it's actually pretty serious because there are, there, are, there are sharks in the water, especially when economies get bad. I mean, look, when I came here, yeah, Stony Brook, I was hired to start this center to study compassionate care and to teach people about that and how to do it in real interactions. Um, but uh, there's a newspaper here in 
in Stony Brook on the North Shore of Long Island. It's called the Three Village Herald. And some cub reporter <clears throat> had gone online and she'd seen that I've been you know, interviewed. I've been, you know, the, the Daily Show, you know, Dr. Oswald about unlimited love, which is not what they were hiring me for, you know. It's, I keep that as a nonprofit 501c3. I never associate it with a university because universities will force you into a, sexu a secular modality. And that's not what I wanted. That's not what Sir John wanted. So I do like two things, you know. Um, and, 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 but this news, the front, the front page of the Three Village Herald, first night I'm here, one headline, unlimited love comes to Stony Brook. I practically died. And they quoted the dean of this medical school at the time, Richard Fine, who's a pediatric nephrologist. He said, well, we think he can really do the empathy communication stuff well. We're not quite sure about the unlimited love, but that's okay. That's on the side. And then they talked to my department chair, same kind of thing. <clears throat> and so the first day I came to work, I'm going up this escalator in the middle of the medical school. And there's this guy at the top and he's, he's not huge, but he's got big arms and, and he's wearing a t-shirt. It's June at 2008, July, 2008. And he's really staring at me, you know, and I, I've never seen this guy before. He looks a little bit like Mr. Clean, if you ever saw those advertisements. Mm. You know, you know, so so I, looked, I looked at him, I said, sir, um, do I know you? And he looked at me and he said, he, he has a very uh, Eastern European accent. He said, are you Dr. Post? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And then he said to me, are you going to save us? <laughs> and this is like a hyper science environment, totally secular, hyper science. And I said to him, well, sir, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I'll do my best. And we became good friends. He happened to be a good classical violinist. <clears throat> but, um, but, you know, you're going to run into all kinds of people. And on Route 80, you know, um, you just have to understand that the infinite mind will, will have you encounter adversity so that it can bring out the best in you. That's always the case. And so I talk about life as an expanding canvas. There are going to be moments when things look bleak, but it's like a Jackson Pollock painting. Pollock out here on Eastern Long Island would throw that blob of paint down on the floor on that canvas, and it looked like hell. But by the time he covered it over with these energetic, beautiful lines, it became something of pure beauty. So you have to expand the canvas. And if you, but to do that, it takes spiritual discipline. It takes focus. And you have to have faith in the journey. So that's, that's why I like strength and love because boy, yeah. you know, I mean, Martin Luther King didn't have to go that way, but he did. Yeah, what a great example to us all. Well, we are almost out of time, Stephen, but we can't let you go without, without talking about the Blue Angel. So I want you to share um, briefly, but don't leave anything out, <laughs> um, the story about these, uh, you know, this repeated series of dreams, how that changed your life. And you have to put in, you know, the other piece of that, the book into that, about what happened on Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, well, okay, thank you for asking. 
um, you know, I, I was a pretty, I was, I read a lot of spiritual classics, but I, as a kid, and, um, but I wouldn't call myself, you know, particularly mystical. I mean, I was prayerful. We had required chapel service every morning, and, um, and I studied a lot. Um, so when I was 15, one morning up at St. Paul's, in the morning, early morning, sort of between sleep and wakefulness, kind of, uh, Victor Turner would say, betwixt and between, um, I, w I had this dream. And it was a very surprising dream. It was very vivid and very real. And it was of a, of a road, I knew it was going in a westward direction. It was covered with this really thick fog and cloud and you couldn't see very far. And I'm walking down this road and there, I'm, on my left, I see the face of a young person um, with really dirty blonde hair and I just know he's about to jump. And then a blue face comes into my dream. I was not a believer in angels, but in a feminine voice, it said, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the fog dissipated and it was, it was blue heading to the west. And I had no idea what to do with it. So, I would talk about this in Rod Wells' Sacred Studies class. And even some of my friends, I mean, Charlie Scribner, who was the son of Scribner's publishing, you know, we, I, he's, he and I are still close friends. We talked about this because we were studying these themes. And, um, <clears throat> and Rod Wells was a bit of a Jungian. So, so I had this dream six times over about a year. And I, I wasn't sure if it meant anything because it could have been a dyspeptic hot dog. Or, you know, I did get some demerits up there. So I did have to rake sometimes in the hot summer, in the hot fall afternoons. And, you know, maybe my mind was getting googly. And I know that human beings are meaning-seeking creatures. And some of it's just subjective stuff we conjure up, and it's not very objective. So I wasn't 100% sure. <clears throat> but um, it's, I talked about it a lot, and it meant something to me. And... Um, the thing I liked up there in New Hampshire, I used to tutor French Canadian kids who were poor in a school called Melville, which is across the road from St. Paul's. And my teacher, Rod Wells, had gotten me um, um, a job that summer of my 17th year tutoring in the Bronx. And my parents were dead set against it. I'm making this a little shorter. I'm cutting out some things, but my parents were dead set against it. And uh, we got in a big argument. And after a couple of days, my mom finally, in her desperation, said, we're not going to cover you to go to Swarthmore if you insist on this. And I, by the way, had applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, because of the dream. I thought somehow, intuitively, I'm supposed to go out west. I didn't know why, but I applied. <clears throat> so um, I said, all right, if I can't tutor what am I going to do this summer? And my dad was the president of W and J Sloan's department store, which a lot of people remember. It was a big store. And he knew all the manufacturers in greater New York. So he said, I'll get you a job in Bill de Bono's lampshade factory. I actually knew Bill de Bono. He smoked a big stogie. And oh my goodness, you know, so I, for, for, for two weeks, I drove dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which had seen a lot better days 
to build the Bono's lampshade factory in Patchak, which is only about 20 miles from here, ironically. And I hated it. It was okay. I, I, I cut cardboard on, an, on, a, on a, a lampshade assembly line. <clears throat> but after a couple of weeks, I'd had it. It was sweaty. It was not air conditioned. And this had nothing to do with who I am. So I went out to West Hampton Beach, which is out near Southampton, out in the Hamptons here. And I had a couple of friends from St. Paul's who lived out there. And on a, on a Friday night, you know, I, a Saturday night, I, I, I was there with Livy Sutro and Chris Gressoff and a few other folks. And I said, you know what? I'm quitting the lampshade factory. And I'm going to follow my dream. And I don't want to go to college anyway. I don't give a damn about college. I'm just going to go west. So there was a, the pull was the dream, but the push was the lampshade factory and the things weren't too smooth at home. So I had my classical guitar and I had about 40 bucks in my wallet. I had a copy of Siddhartha and the perennial philosophy, Aldous Huxley. And, and, um, and I just started driving about 11 and I started driving west Sunrise Highway, drove through the Midtown Tunnel and I drove across town to the, what, to the George Washington Bridge. I'd never driven over the George Washington Bridge previously, but I, drew, but I knew that was west. So I went over the bridge and there were two signs. One said 95 South. I wasn't going South because the dream was West. The other said Route 80 West. So I went on 80. About five in the morning, I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania near the Lewisburg exit. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to do a U-turn over the midway because that way I can get home and my reputation will be intact. <laughs> Wishful thinking. <laughs> but just at that moment, the generator broke in the Mercedes. Now, you know, it had better, seen better days, as I mentioned, but cars back then had generators. And when the generator went, everything went. The engine went, all the electricity was off, and it was pretty dark. So I managed to get over to the shoulder of the road. And then what was I going to do? There were just cornfields. Oh, there's nothing out there. Even today, there's nothing out there. So, you know, wheat and corn. <clears throat> and there were no cell phones, obviously. So... I looked into the glove compartment, I pulled out a piece of paper and with a pencil, I wrote, this is a quote, to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655, that was the phone number, from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. And I stuck my thumb out and, you know, I got this big truck came by. It was like out of heaven. And there was a guy named Gary who was a really interesting Christian. And he got me out to Chicago. And I finally got out to San Francisco. And I spent the summer with my cousin George in the Mission District playing Villalobos in Hispanic restaurants and chanting at the Nichiren Shoshu Temple, Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And I drew a very bad draft number. So I was headed for Vietnam, and I'm not totally anti-war, but that was a bad one. Uh, I mean, I believe there can be a just war, but this was not a good one. If there's any such thing as a good one, it's, there's never a good one, but I, I, it was so unjustifiable. So uh, I called the people at Reed College because I turned them down. They'd admitted me, and I turned them down. I said, look, I don't particularly want to go to Vietnam. Can you open up a spot for me in your entering class? They said they could do it. So out in front of the Nichiren Shoshu tem Temple, which was on Market Street and Chenery Street, my cousin George 
Gus, a Japanese-American guy, who was my mentor and a bunch of people from the temple. <clears throat> I was headed up to Oregon, where Reed College is located, and they gave me my gohonzo, which you can Google, okay? It's a scroll. And Gus explained the symbols to me. It's like, you know, universal mind, infinite mind, um, <clears throat> kindness, uh, um, mysterious depth, all these kinds of symbols. And so I scrolled it back up and I put it in my backpack and I get the bus up Marcus Street and I get the bus to the uh, Golden Gate Park and I walk across the park. It's about 7, 7.30 in the morning. Maybe it's 8 in the morning. And, I, and I'm walking across, I, I walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. You can see it right there at the other edge of the park. And um, I get to the middle of the first span. Now it's very foggy. I, I couldn't see more than like literally two feet in front of my nose. And um, I just hear a little scratching noise. I look to my left because there was a railing about waist high. Like now, I was actually back there last year doing a talk at the East West Bookstore. And they have, they, they have a big like head high fence because they don't want people jumping up there. But I looked to my left and I squinted and I saw the contours of a face of a guy who was maybe about my age and he had stringy long blonde hair and he was kind of leaning over and he looked like he was about to jump. And I very quietly, I said to him, excuse me, but I hope you're not planning to jump. And he was so mad at me because I had invaded that very private final moment he started screaming and he was even yelling out Shakespeare from Macbeth, you know, life is empty, meaningless, meaninglessness. And I, I said, you know, we did that at St. Paul's and, and, and it's a little more realistic coming from you out there on the, uh, uh, you know, about to jump uh, off a bridge than it was at Memorial Hall where we did it. But I just want you to know something <clears throat> before you do this. I think I'm here for a reason. And he just started cussing at me. And <clears throat> And, and, he's, and, and, and he's just like, you know, this is total BS. And I said, well, let me tell you. When I was 15, two years ago, I had a dream. And this was 3,000 miles away. So it was two years ago, it was 3,000 miles. I had a dream. And I think I saw you in this dream. And um, you were on the edge of a ledge and you were about to. And, and I said, I, I, you know, I explained the whole story about the argument with my parents about Bill de Bono's lampshade factory. It took about 20 minutes. It was kind of a monologue because I, you know, it was good to engage him. And I stole the car. I left it on the middle of route 80 with the police note. And I got out to George's and everything. I explained the whole thing to him. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, you're really crazy. And I said, well, you know, but I'm, I'm on the walkway. You're out there on the ledge. And then we talked for a while and I'm going to the conversation, but I said to him, look, if you come on this side of the railing, I'm going to give you something that's going to change your luck. You know, Buddhists do that. They have little tokens and things. <clears throat> I have something that's going to change your luck. And he was still indignant. He said, what's that? I said, I'm going to give you my Gahon zone. Because if you have this Gahon zone, you're going to have a great future. So he didn't believe me. And I pulled it out and I, and I, 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 I unscrolled it and I showed it to him a little bit. He could see bits of it. And I said, come on over here and I'll explain it. So his name was Harry and I explained it to him. And, uh, and I said, look, I'll give this to you, but you have to do me a favor. You have to walk 
north on south on the bridge because I'm walking north. And here's a note which I wrote out in pen to my cousin George Lamont, who lived on Four Chenery Street in the Mission District, and with whom I'd spent the summer sleeping on his kitchen floor. <clears throat> He'd done two tours of duty in Vietnam himself. He was a Green Beret. He said, to, 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 Dear George, this is Harry. Please let him sleep where I slept. Bring him down to the temple. Introduce him to Gus. Just take care of him for a while, because he can get his life together. And uh, I never heard from Harry that you know, later that summer, because I went up to Oregon. But um, apparently, he, you know, he did meet George, and he did make his way, incidentally, back to North Carolina. And um, as I was walking north on the bridge, all the dense fog lifted, and it was this beautiful blue sky. And I just felt euphoric, because I sensed that somehow or another, uh, despite all this, all this stuff that had happened, I had been guided on this trip across the United States on Route 80 to be there at the Golden Gate Bridge to meet this guy and to help him out. And that there was truth in the dream. And that even though I had no idea what it meant, and I was sometimes just a little bit cynical about it. I thought it was just my crazy mind trying to create meaning where there is none. But at that point, from that encounter, um, I realized that there is this one mind, that there is an oversoul, that we are more one than we realize. There is a mystery of moon interconnection. There is synchronicity, because we did read Young, by the way, up there at St. Paul's. And, um, and that changed my life. So from that moment on, um, I just followed the dream, and that's what the book is about. Wow. What a story. Stephen, I'm so glad that you joined us today and shared your 10 best and that story with us. Stephen Post, thank you for joining us tonight. And thank you to everybody at home for joining us. You can find out more about Stephen at stephengpost.com. And also, if you want to know about the Unlimited Love Institute, that is www.unlimitedloveinstitute.org. That's it for tonight. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back again next week with Emmanuel Dagger, I believe. I so I hope you'll join me then. <laughs>